0: did you know that you can use code PUREDOGTALK at EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders to receive $20 off? <laughs> I'm saving you 20 bucks, guys, off each Embark for Breeder kit you buy. Embark for Breeders dog DNA kits bring you the genetic results you need to create a best in show breeding program. Identify your puppy's genetic profiles before they go to their new homes, like I did, and give new owners peace of mind and useful genetic health information. Embark, creator of the highest rated dog DNA tests on the market, offers the only genetic coefficient of inbreeding test available and easy to download OFA submission reports for breeders. Find out why thousands of breeders have trusted Embark to enhance their breeding program through screening for breed-specific genetic conditions, understanding traits, and identifying genetic diversity. To save on the most accurate, most comprehensive dog DNA kit, visit EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders. And don't forget this part. Use code Talk to enjoy $20 off each kit in your order. That's EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders, and remember to use the code PUREDOGTALK. Their world-class scientists and veterinary geneticists are standing by. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves. Yeah, those words hit the airwaves for the first time almost exactly five years ago today. 500 times later, I still have to think about my tone and my cadence and my inflection. Maybe just a little bit less these days. (laughs) Sort of like you guys learning to show your dogs. I am entirely self-taught how to do this job. And I am eternally grateful that you have all joined me in what has been a pretty incredible journey. So, today's episode is pure cork-popping, champagne-swilling celebration of our tribe. You guys shared some amazing stories about how this show has impacted your life and dogs. Like, amazing stuff, you guys. And I dug around and pulled out some of my favorite guests and interview moments. So, it'll be kind of a fun conversation today. Pure Dog Talk is not, and never has been, and never will be, static. It lives, it grows, often faster than I can keep up with. And as we move forward in the coming years, there's going to be some changes, of course. For example, I will now, once again, be podcasting exclusively on Pure Dog Talk. I've stepped way, outside my comfort zone. And I'm going to be offering some more Facebook Live and webinar opportunities here at Pure Dog Talk. Like we have the Canine First Aid 911 series with Marty Greer. It's available to purchase on the website right now. Had the first one this week. Amazing. And we're also going to move back to more of the, hopefully, pre-pandemic live seminars panel discussions, all that sort of thing over the course of the next coming year or so. But mostly today, you guys, I wanted to say thank you to all of you, my listeners, my guests, my patrons, my sponsors, my supporters, and the best compliment of all, my competitors. You have all made me better at this role than I could have ever Dreamed of being. My goal of offering meaningful education for free to as many people in our sport as I could possibly reach has absolutely come to pass. Thank you. Thank you for taking me with you on your dog show drives, your performance event drives, on your treadmill, even on your lawnmower. I am deeply honored to keep you company while you bath and trim and condition and even pick up after your dogs. Thank you for caring so very much about your dogs, your breeding programs, and the sport of purebred dogs. Without your single-minded dedication, they would all cease to exist. So here are just a handful of the hundreds of stories of Pure Dog Talk's impact from our tribe. And we're going to start today with a story from Diane Davis. And Diane says, I first heard about Pure Dog Talk when something came across Facebook about a handler friend of mine being interviewed about the Professional Handlers Association and how to hire a professional handler to show your dog. I listened to the episode and thought it was well done, so I decided to try listening to a few more. I was pleased to discover that these were also well done and informative. I have about a 40-minute commute to work, so I began to listen while driving back and forth. And it wasn't long before I got caught up on the episodes that I thought would be interesting. And then I started to go through some of the others. And what I discovered was that I learned something from every episode. I began to look forward to the episodes coming out and would listen to them several times so I didn't miss anything. Pure Dog Talk has become a big part of my life. I love learning about other breeds. The episode about the Bracco Italiani brought back a memory of the Bracco Axel floating around the ring to win the World Challenge Cup at Yukonuba. the year I was there. I loved hearing about judges. As an owner-handler, I always felt that the judges were sort of unapproachable. But these interviews helped me see that they're people, too. Veterinary Voice with Dr. Marty Greer was invaluable. The episode on Pyometra gave me the tools to advocate for my girl with my vet when she developed Pyometra on her first heat cycle. We were able to medically manage her condition, and she has since had two litters. And speaking of puppies, Pure Dog Talk has taught me a lot about breeding, whelping, and raising puppies. I hadn't bred a litter in nearly seven years because my last litter had been so hard but with new knowledge and new resources, I've bred and raised two litters just this year. Then 2020 happened. COVID-19 happened. Dog shows disappeared from the Pacific Northwest for over six months. Uncertainty about health and finances, family and friends was ever present in everyone's life. But through it all, the Pure Dog Talk podcast was one of the few things that was stable. The Patrons After Dark was created so that once a month we could meet via Zoom and talk about dogs, have an adult beverage, and feel sort of normal. When we had the first retreat in Montana in September of 2020, we realized we had created a wonderful community of dog people and a safe space for everybody involved. The virtual dog shows were fun and a way to participate in some small way in a dog show. And I know that I speak for others as well when I say these activities helped keep me sane during that crazy year. As everybody in dogs knows, things are never easy. There are disappointments and body blows, there are emergencies and vet bills. And- money issues, and just plain exhaustion. But the Pure Dog Talk podcast seems to have uncanny timing. And usually it's talking about a subject that I need to hear about when I need to hear about it. And when I look into the eyes of my dogs, it's all worth it. I wouldn't trade them or my life with them for anything. When you know better, you do better. Thank you, Pure Dog Talk for everything you've given me and my dogs. Thank you, Diane, for joining us in the Patron's Tribe. All right, next up, we have a commentary story from Tracy in Montgomery, Alabama. She is a breeder owner handler of Havanese. And she says that she just recently discovered Pure Dog Talk, but that the recent podcast with Amanda Kelly sparked a fire in her as an owner-handler and her journey for showing dogs. It was so inspirational for her, she says. As an owner-handler, I quote, I crave information in every way, and your podcast is priceless in supplying great, unbiased information. Thanks, Tracy. Tracy has a Fabulous story, I have to tell you. I love this story. She took her bread-by-dog at 18 months old to the Havanese National Specialty in 2016 with friends from her local kennel club. It was only her second national. She had no expectations whatsoever. Really, the goal was to, quote, rub shoulders with the best of the best and learn, learn, learn. Not to mention drink wine and dine and fellowship with my favorite people. She said she found herself in the ring with 36 or so of the best male Havanese in the country. She made the first cut. Wow. And then she went back in and she made the second cut. And I quote, holy shit. (laughs) All right. She went back in again and she won the whole damn thing. And I quote it is still surreal to her to this day. So the reason she submitted her story is that looking back over the last several years as a hobby breeder, owner-handler of Havanese, it's really about learning to run the race gracefully. Win or lose, for me, it's about sharing my passion with my people. Because seriously, at the end of the day, without the memories, it would be just another dog show. Love that, Tracy. Super glad to have you join us. All right. So now we have another story. This is from one of our patrons as well. This is Kaylee Paler. Many of you have seen her amazing Azawak and follow her blogs about the work she does as a dog trainer. She is a pretty remarkable individual. And her story is this. I started in confirmation the request of my boy's breeder. An Azawak is far from the easiest dog to start with. Sighthounds with guarding instincts aren't exactly the easiest dog to convince to stand for exam. (laughs) We took handling classes, debuted in the ring before the breed had been fully AKC recognized, and he took best in miscellaneous. We showed again a few weekends later, and he suddenly hit adolescence, and his guarding instincts developed, and he wanted nothing to do with the judge. We muddled along for the next couple years with varying degrees of success. During that time, I have the distinct memory of having drinks with a good friend who had started showing the same weekend I had. And we were talking about show dogs, and she recommended a podcast called Pure Dog Talk that she'd just discovered. I wasn't really the podcast type, but I decided to give it a shot. I started putting it on on the commute to work and driving to and from shows and trials. Since then, Pure Dog Talk has been integrally woven into my life. I travel often for both my work as a dog trainer and for shows and performance events. Over the past two years, I've driven more miles than I care to count. Pure Dog Talk was there for all of it. I've listened to Marty Greer give whelping advice on my way to open field coursing. I've listened to experts like Dr. Gail Watkins, Bill Shelton, Dr. Teresa Nesbitt, and so many more give advice and valuable insight on a dizzying array of topics on my way to everything from Royal Canin to UKC Premier to Legra straight racing, lure coursing, and agility trials. And through it all is the one constant laura's voice guiding us through preconceptions prejudices and recording this information for the history books i grew up playing team sports and have a strong community is both revitalizing to me and so useful as a sounding board and that is what laura has built with pure dog talk a community a tribe as she calls it in many ways pure dog talk has been instrumental resource for me over the last couple years. Not just for the handling tips, but also the whelping information as I get ready to whelp my first litter. Pure Dog Talk is an invaluable resource for the purebred dog community, and I'm eternally grateful to Laura for undertaking this podcast and for other listeners and patrons for supporting it and helping it become the resource it is today. Thank you, Kaylee. There's more, but I was too embarrassed to read it, so. (laughs) Finally, from Christina in Canada with her bull terriers. Christina says, I wanted to give you a thank you update. Your podcast supported me showing my bull terrier bitch, and with the wackiness of 2020, she became the top bull terrier in Canada. What? She said, sure, there weren't many shows, but there weren't many for everybody equally. Then, as I binge-listened to breeding podcasts with Dr. Greer and with Avidog, I planned her breeding with frozen semen imported from Poland to an amazingly successful litter of 11 bull terrier puppies. You helped me build my courage, keep up my spirits, and feel confident enough to go ahead with this breeding. So thank you. You have made such a difference in my life and the life of my dogs. I just wanted you to know. Thank you, Christina. And thank you, everyone who sent stories, who send me emails and messages and stop me at dog shows. I am deeply humbled and honored and grateful. Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. Your Dog Talk is proudly sponsored by Trupanion medical insurance for pets. With over $1 billion, with a B, in claims paid, Trupanion has you covered, whether you're a dedicated breeder, a loving owner, or both. Trupanion is also the first pet insurance provider to offer a special breeding rider that you can add to your coverage. That way, you know your dogs are covered from common health concerns associated with breeding and whelping, like emergency C-sections, for example. Learn more about all of the perks that Trupanion offers breeders by following the link on my partner page at puredogtalk.com. One of my favorite stories from listeners is from Katie Wright, who has otter hounds and took to heart the... Preservation breeding message that we have here at Pure Dog Talk, and here she's going to tell you her story in her own words.
1: About two years ago, I was considering breeding my first litter of Otterhound puppies. I was really unsure of myself. I didn't think I had the knowledge background, and then I discovered the Pure Dog Talk podcast and then the Patrons Group community. Amazing people, amazing information in those podcasts really gave me the encouragement and reassurance I needed to go forth. I'm happy to report we have had nine otterhound puppies so far, and I'm looking towards the future.
0: So, with that, I have a few of my very favorite memories collected for you guys here. These are my favorite guests and some pieces of my favorite conversations over the last five years. So here's Sue Hubner. Breeder of the famous cord maker Pulik with advice on how she built her breeding program. I'm a complete pedigree junkie. Mm, <laughs> I, I admit it. I probably need a 12 step program on this. So talk to us about how you built this and talk to us about what do those successful pedigrees look like, right? Like Pat Trotter talks about the tail female line. I particularly love Uncle Niece breedings. How did you get here today?
1: Well, obviously, when I first began, my objective was very simple. I wanted a dog to show in the show ring. So I was looking for the quality that I needed in order to have a dog to show in the show ring. So at this stage, I had my friendly Rumpole, who I did not consider either in pedigree, even from my elementary study, in pedigree nor type, was where I wanted to begin. I just didn't. I loved him dearly, but he was not going to be part of the breeding program. Of course, the question then says, well, how did you start your breeding program? And this is something else that I think is important as well. Breeding is as much about luck and trust and interacting with other people as it is about the actual dogs in front of you. And I had a very good mentor in Australia. She had been in the breed many, many, many years. And I spoke to her. And she said, Sue, there is this litter which has been bred on basically, you know, from east to west coast. There is this beautiful bitch. She's never been bred. Why don't you approach the people and see if you could lease the bitch? A concept which I'd never heard of, right? (laughs) Right. So I approached these people. And here's the luck and the trust, right? They said, yes, we will bring her over to you. They came and stayed and later, many, many years later, when I asked the owners, why did you leave Moppet with me? She said, because you had more toys for the dog than you had gifts for us. (laughs) Now, that was nothing to do with anything except we liked each other. She trusted me and I had this bitch. She was predominantly UK bred because most of our early imports in this country came from the United Kingdom. She had a slight Swedish outcross on one side. But she was a beautiful, beautiful shape and type. So her pedigree may not have been the strongest in the world, but there in front of me stood what I wanted to have as my final picture. And I can see this little bitch was called Moppet. I can see her in almost every bitch we breed and we can look at it and say, there's Moppet. Mm-hmm. there's Moppet mm-hmm. now this is 1988 and it's just luck okay so we had Moppet we bred Moppet okay we got a lovely little dog out of it okay and I was absolutely excited and I've got this gorgeous little fellow called Georgie we'll show him he did very well and somebody else decided to breed the sister of this particular bitch and when they bred the sister in the little the, the same sire sister to the same sire that I'd used there was one blind puppy well I was devastated Because I, by this stage, had now researched genetics and inherited diseases and probably had too much knowledge and too little understanding not to overreact. So I didn't know what to do. And at that stage, we had only one eye specialist in this country. So I contacted him once again, someone who I was lucky, right, to find. And I said, I don't know what to do. He said, I want you to bring me the puppy. So we had the puppy sent over. He looked at the puppy. He said, I really can't tell you, Sue, but he said... I don't think this is genetic. Something's gone on here. And I said, well, the sister is the foundation. You know, I've gone to a lot of trouble. She's the foundation of my breeding program. I said, what do I do? And he said, the only thing you can do is do a close mating. And I went, close mating? Yes, she said, you need to go to a close mating. So we bred the offspring, right? our dog that we had kept, back to his mother. Okay. We, in that one litter, had no blind puppies. So it was, if you like, a fairly superficial test, but somehow made me positive again, right, that I should move forward. So that was the reason why I understood inbreeding very early in my career in dogs. Most people don't have to make that sort of a decision. They make it by choice. We felt that we had to make that decision. So I've never really had the same barrier to inbreeding that many other breeders have, because I know it can be a very useful tool under certain circumstances. And I think that when we've set up barriers to that completely across the board, and we then overlay that with preservation breeding,
0: my view is that you can't have mandated breeding structure, which is what they have in Europe. And then Andrew Brace offered his insight all the way from the UK on the importance of reading and understanding pedigrees in order to achieve success in our breeding programs.
2: Now, those breeders who think breeding a winner is simply a matter of mating a winning bitch to a winning dog are another matter. They fail to realize the value and implications of the pedigree and do not understand what a valuable breeding tool this is. However, you need to be able to read a pedigree, and this is where the truly great breeders score. The pedigree form supplies a lot of valuable information, provided the reader has researched the dogs who appear in it. They'll study a pedigree of at least five generations. And if they don't know all the dogs in it personally, they'll research them through either seeking out photographs or simply by asking the older breeders who are still around exactly where these dogs scored and failed. And in this way, they build up a comprehensive picture of their dog's ancestry. They will, over a period of time, be able to assess what faults and virtues lie behind their breeding stock, and possibly more importantly, establish which dogs were responsible for producing them. They'll analyze the level of line breeding and consequently determine which dogs have the greatest influence on their own. And with this information, they'll be in a position to decide which dogs can be doubled up on when a mating is being considered. And which should not. The great breeders also understand that correct is not produced by mating two extremes. Rather, the potential parent who lacks in one area should be mated to a dog that excels in that failing. So, as an example, a dog that's slightly straight behind will not produce puppies with perfect rear angulation by mating it to a dog that is hopelessly overangulated. Its chosen mate should be a dog that has correct angulation. The ability to read a pedigree is an art, and it's something that can be learned in time. But the pedigree form is not just a piece of paper. It's something that can be the keynote to a breeder's success.
0: Meanwhile, Sue Hubner and Andrew Brace, along with Virginia Line, shared absolutely vital understandings of dog shows and dog judging.
1: As I was saying with the FCI, I do think they do some things right. We talk about, oh, you know, what is the purpose of the dog show? And most people want to make that purpose slightly more sophisticated than it actually is. I'm very blunt. It's about getting out there with your dog and winning, right? There's not much more to it. If you're placing dogs one, two, three, four, that's what it's about, right? And the difficulty of that system is that the placings one, two, three, four don't help terribly much. And when people start breeding, they think it does. They think that if I go to the dog that's won the most, then I must be guaranteed that that dog is going to work for me. Well, I don't think you have that guarantee in any way at all. All you have is a dog that won a lot. So in the FCI, where they have a grading system, in a sense, it's divided into two parts. They grade the dogs, ranging from excellent to basically ungradable, and the excellent dogs go forward and they're allowed to participate in the dog show. Oh, I like that, right? Now, the advantage of that is not necessarily only the excellent dogs go through for the dog show. The advantage of that is it brings us back at least slightly to the real purpose of the dog show originally, which was for breeders to get together and evaluate breeding stock. So if you were judging in SCI, okay, and I was standing ringside trying to decide what will I do with my next breeding program and watching the dogs and which lines seem to be coming forward and so on, I might, in a class of five dogs, realize that there are five dogs that have been graded excellent by the judge in that class. In another class, I might have five dogs again, and none of them were graded excellent. Mm -hmm. But in the dog show bit, one of those poor quality dogs is number one. In the other part where they're all excellent... One of them is one, and all the rest are two, three, four, and five. But they're all still excellent. (laughs) That's right. They're all excellent, right? And if we're worrying about sizes of gene pools, we need to help people make those decisions. Right. Because not all breeders are wanting to do a lot of research. A lot of breeders just do it by instinct. They're not academic about it, right? They need guidance. And I just love the grading.
2: The way that dog shows have evolved is such that we have focused on show dogs and in many breeds this has meant that dogs that are perhaps a little exaggerated in one way or another have taken the eye of the judge over the dogs who are maybe more correctly balanced, maybe more correctly constructed because they have that little sense of drama about them. And, you know, I've been faced with classes in the breed ring where you instantly look around and dogs are catching your eyes because they have tremendous necks or they have wonderful heads or whatever. And then as you're halfway through the hands-on, this dog walks in front of you and you just look at it and you think, well, this dog is so correct. I mean, there is very little to fault with it, but it is not the flat catcher. As a judge, your responsibility is actually to reward that dog over those dogs that have probably won a ton of best in shows by virtue of the fact that they fly around the ring and have their long necks, gay tails, and are dripping in the air.
3: Because I judge always, I can't do it any other way from what I believe is an assessment of breeding stock, not necessarily the generic show dog. And I think that That's been, unfortunately, a change that has occurred in North America. It's Canada and U.S. in North America, where I think the more flashy, generic look to a breed can sometimes be mistaken as correct. And to some extent, the professional handlers are masters at this. They have created a a look on a certain dog that is very eye-appealing, but not necessarily what the breed is about or what the function of the breed should demand. So there's big changes that have happened. Honestly, I don't think judging is rocket science. We don't need to do a PhD in judging, but we do need to be fascinated by dogs purebred dogs, what they did, how they evolved. We need to know the drags of the breed, the things that are behind the breed in their development, because we call them purebred, but they're not really. They all come back out of a number of combinations. And I think that we have to get people fascinated by that so that they can go and sit at ringside and watch any breed and be curious about what it does, how it works, what the coat feels like, and ask questions. We are afraid to sometimes ask questions. I wish I could say we need to lighten up a little bit in the sport. It's just a dog show. Tomorrow is another day. You will have another shot at it. It's not the end of the world. If you can take something from your experience and learn from it, maybe bath your dog before you bring it to the ring. I've had some of those. Maybe... Be a little more knowledgeable. Learn a little more about how to trim to make the best of the shape of your dog. If it's a trimmed breed, get somebody to show you your dog. So you, as an exhibitor, if you're going to be in there doing it, have a chance to know what your dog looks like in the ring. Get somebody else to take the dog down and back for you so you can understand where he's maybe towing in in front or he's flipping a pastern, and you don't necessarily see that when you're on the end of the lead. So get somebody else to show you what that dog looks like. Take him around. I'm very much a side view of the dog because I believe that what you see from the side is a big message about structure and balance and proportion, and... I get more out of that than I do just a dog standing still and being stared at. I think that exhibitors do need to take more responsibility for learning about that. They can learn from the professionals. They know how to put it down. They know how to make that dog show well. And I think that that is important that we do that. But I do think we need to lighten up a little bit and not get quite so angry with each other. We're all inclined to be a little bit too intense sometimes about These are our dogs. We love them. They do become extensions of our ego, unfortunately. And when you reject my dog, you reject me. And we need to lose that concept. This is our dog. We do love it.
0: And finally, as an appropriate send-off, my dear friends Bill and Taffy McFadden, top professional handlers, share their thoughts on what makes a dog a great one. What makes a great dog... I think it's kind of intangible because some great dogs are great because of their character. You know, they're good dogs. And what elevates them is their character and their presence and uh, magnetism that, you know, people are drawn to them. Showmanship. Yeah, it's showmanship, but some dogs just literally suck people in. I'm talking as a handler, not as a breeder, but as a dog, as a performance, there are some dogs
2: that really suck people in and there are other dogs that are just as good that don't have that quality,
0: that it factor. And it's true in people too. You know, there's athletes and actors and singers that have that where you're drawn to them. They may not be technically as good as some of their peers, but they have that quality that makes you want to listen to them or be them or sleep with them. Sleep with them? Seriously? (laughs) I always sleep with my top special,
3: so. (laughs) Under the covers, all snoozy.
0: No, I agree. I think that the it factor has been used several times, um, describing a dog that's out there that commands the attention of not only the judge, But all the spectators and usually all the other handlers, you know, they aspire to replicate that dog's energy and presence. And there can be some really great dogs out there that are flat show dogs, and there can be some good dogs that just ooze that personality and they're foolers sometimes. All right, you guys, this has been a great trip down memory lane. I've enjoyed sharing the stories of our listeners sharing the insight of our guests and there are so many more moments and episodes and conversations to be had. So watch this space. The next five years are guaranteed to be chock-a-block with more knowledge to be shared. Like the NPR of dogdom, pure dog talk is here for you to make sense out of everyday things to add nuance to your understanding and tools to your tech box to bring history to life and propel the living history of purebred dogs into the future. One of my favorite events over the last year or so has been the virtual after dark for patrons of the podcast. Anybody can join this amazing community of dog enthusiasts by visiting the website and clicking the become a patron link on the homepage. While you're there zooming around on the site, you can check out our shopping tab, too. There's even a Pure Dog Talk swag link. Who oh no. knew? Share the love with all our cool gear. Check it all out at www.puredogtalk.com. Your support adds up to a huge voice for purebred dogs. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review.